From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The impeachment inquiry is now in the hands of the House Judiciary Committee, historically the place where formal impeachment charges would be drafted. During the hearings, Democrats made the case that President Trump abused his office by trying to trade military aid to Ukraine for an investigation into the family of his perceived rival, Joe Biden. Republicans countered that the White House eventually released the aid, clearing the president of any wrongdoing and questioning the reliability of some of the testimony. The first round of proceedings in the House Intelligence Committee surfaced two things that don't often make headlines, the use of hearsay and the U.S. State Department. We've invited a couple of Georgia experts to discuss those topics. First up, Parag Shah. He's an attorney and pro hoc judge to the City of Atlanta Municipal Court, which means he works part-time in that capacity. Parag is also author of The Code, a reference guide to Georgia rules of evidence. Prague, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about the topic of hearsay. What is it exactly? So hearsay is a rule of evidence that says a witness can't testify about what someone else said as proof that what they said is true. For example, if you asked me, is it cold outside? And I said, my wife said it's cold outside. That's hearsay. So is hearsay allowed in court proceedings? Hearsay is absolutely allowed. There are tons of exceptions to hearsay. The big issue with hearsay is like the telephone game. We've all played the telephone game. And the problem with the telephone game is that the person at the end usually gets wrong with the person who started the telephone game said. And because the issue is reliability. Sometimes people misspeak. We mishear things. There's some context. But they're questioning those things. We can determine, well, some things are reliable. So if my wife, if we take my wife's scenario again, if I see her walk outside and she goes, oh, my God, it's cold, I can probably rely on that. Or she layers up with many, many coats. Absolutely. Okay, so all of those can create the, I guess, background for something that is hearsay. Sure. So what is an example of hearsay having been used in a court proceeding? In criminal cases, they, we have things, preliminary hearings, probable cause hearings, where an officer will testify about what a victim said to them. And that may be enough to arrest the person. And if we try to compare it to what's going on right now in this inquiry hearings, it's similar to, in a criminal case, getting an indictment against someone. A grand jury meets, they hear testimony, usually from the officer, and it's usually hearsay information in which a grand jury decides, I think there's enough to bring formal charges. But and that's based on the reliability of the person who brought the hearsay charge forward, correct? Sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, obviously, we're able to question the context and all those things of the hearsay statements. But there are times where hearsay is absolutely admissible. So, for example, we have something called child hearsay, which means that if a child under a certain age makes an allegation of sexual abuse toward, to a parent or just to an adult, that adult can say what the child said. Because we don't want children of that age coming in, having to relive things or say things. There are public policies, reasons why, and so cases like whistleblower situations. We want to protect the whistleblower and public policy reasons, and so hearsay is totally fine. Well, let's actually use an example of that. Republicans cried hearsay during two key moments of the impeachment proceedings. Here's the first. Ranking member on in the Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunez, and Committee Chair Adam Schiff talking about somebody who is notably absent. Now that the whistleblower has successfully kick-started impeachment, he has disappeared from the story, as if the Democrats put the whistleblower in their own witness protection program. Uh, what agency was this individual from? If I could interject here, uh, 
we don't want to use these it's proceedings. Our, it's our time. I know, Chair. But we need to protect the whistleblower. Um, uh, if please stop. I want to make sure that uh, there's no effort to out the whistleblower uh, through the use of these proceedings. So the whistleblower's initial complaint was based on conversations with other people. According to whistleblower laws, that is okay. But when we're talking about holding a public hearing, didn't this all start with hearsay? It did start with hearsay. But the main distinction here is this is not court. The real question is, do we want these proceedings to be more stringent than court? Because if we were saying this is court, just like in the criminal setting where we would have a hearing to see if there's enough to bring charges, which is essentially what this inquiry is, the real trial happens with the Senate. This is just an inquiry to see if we should have articles of impeachment that should have a trial for the Senate. And if you compare it to court, that's totally fine. And the second part of this is you want to protect the whistleblower. If we say, you know what, you're entitled to cross-examine your accuser, confront your accuser, well, then whistleblowers won't come forward. And whistleblowers don't have to. They're protected from that. They're protected, just like minor children who make allegations of sexual abuse. All right. Here is the second moment during the hearings in which Republicans say this was hearsay. Ambassador William Taylor, acting U.S. envoy to Ukraine here. Ambassador Sondland told me that President Trump had told him that he wants President Zelensky to state publicly that Ukraine will investigate Burisma and alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. In fact, Ambassador Sondland said, everything was dependent on such an announcement, including security assistance. Well, that certainly sounds like a game of telephone. Why might it be hearsay? Hearsay is just generally what someone else said. But that doesn't mean that it's not reliable. From my understanding of what was just played, they're there, they're hearing it. There are things that are also not hearsay. So, for example, in the court of law, statements against interest or how the person who's hearing it also is perceiving the conversation. If the person hearing it believes that, you know, this could be some quid pro quo or this is how I'm interpreting what is being said, it may not necessarily be hearsay. Hearsay is what we're talking about, the actual words. Are the actual words the truth? And so in this situation, what we also look at is, are there corroborating factors? Are there things that are corroborating what was heard, what's been said? And that adds to the reliability. Remember, this is not beyond a reasonable doubt. We're not trying to prove this 100%. What we're trying to do is say, is there enough evidence here to say we should move forward with a Senate trial on impeachment? I'm speaking with Parag Shah, attorney and judge for the City of Atlanta Municipal Court and author of a pocket guide called The Code, a reference guide to Georgia's rules of evidence. Parag, EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland went on to testify that he did perceive a quid pro quo. Ukraine would get its aid when Trump got his investigation or an announcement of an investigation of the Bidens. Does that make a difference? Yes. Basically, we're trying to figure out, can we rely on hearsay statements that we've heard. And any level of corroboration helps to say, you know, this is a little bit reliable. Like you said, for the example with it being cold. If we see people walking around with jackets on, then we can probably rely on that statement. There are two types of evidence. There's direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. Both are totally fine in, in the court of law. Direct is basically, I saw him commit the crime. Circumstantial, an example of that is, if I walked in, my boots are wet and I have an umbrella, you can pretty much take from that evidence as maybe raining outside. You weren't out there. You didn't see that it was raining. But based on all the information you have and me saying, 
you know, my wife said it's raining outside too. That's enough to say, you know, maybe we can rely on that. The question is just a spectrum of reliability. Is it enough to say, okay, I think we can rely on this? Right. And a Senate trial, as you said, is different from what goes on in a regular courtroom. Or do those same rules apply? So the same rules don't have to apply. The Senate follows their own rules and procedures. And the Chief Justice, Justice Roberts, is the one that's going to preside over it. And so it goes back to the fundamental question. Do we want it to be more stringent than court? Do we want to hold it as we would criminal trials beyond a reasonable doubt? Who makes that decision about how the trial is conducted? Would it be Justice John, Chief Justice John Roberts? So Chief Justice Roberts just follows whatever the Senate has already decided. So, so the, their Senate, house, the Senate Rules Committee. For Senate it. rules, however, the rules and procedures have already been outlined. That determines it. Now, the Senate can change it. They can change it up to the day before or at any time they want if they have enough majority to change those rules and procedures. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts is just presiding over it and conducting the hearing based on the Senate rules and procedures. So we're not following the rules of evidence that we would follow in federal court or in in Georgia or any of those type of places. And and the reality is, which most people probably don't want to hear, is there are people convicted every day that are getting life sentences, going to prison over hearsay evidence. I have to say, that stuns me. Yes. So yes. It's, it's, hearsay is much more often used in criminal cases than we might be led to believe. The common principle is we want to have as much evidence in as possible. The rule is we don't want to exclude evidence. Let's let everything come in and let's let the people figure out what the truth is. The Republicans, I think, or the people who are on the side of Trump have said that, well, this is a you're talking about deposing a president or impeaching a president. So you have to be absolutely, absolutely sure. Are there high profile cases that you can think of in which hearsay was actually used as admissible evidence? Yes, there's the Stacey Peterson case. Uh, where Stacey Peterson disappeared and her husband... This is about Drew five Pe- years ago or something? Five years ago, a while ago, Drew Peterson was convicted of murder and sentenced to prison based on hearsay testimony specifically, which to correlate to what's going on here, the divorce lawyer, former divorce lawyer said that Stacy told him that Drew told her he had killed Savio and then coached her to lie to police about it. So we have number of layers of hearsay in which the court allowed that information to come in and the jury polled afterwards said that information was very impactful in us making our decision. And similar to what's going on here, one of the arguments is there are a number of layers of hearsay, but that doesn't mean that it's not reliable. I think what they did here is the circumstances, there were other corroborating evidence. And if you put everything together, what you look at is the totality of everything. And that's what juries look at. Juries look at the totality of everything. And that's just 12 people in a box. We got the whole Senate that has to make that decision. That's not easy to convince. In court, hearsay is allowed in preliminary hearings. And that's what the House committee, let's say, is doing now. If the House votes to impeach Trump and this matter does go forward to the Senate, should lawmakers be stricter about prohibiting hearsay there? If we're talking about making the rules stricter, the court of law already has made it very complicated and very strict as as it is. There are so many exceptions. There are so many rules and so many different things in a court of law that can be navigated. This is a totally different proceeding. And so do we want to make it that kind of situation where it is stricter than a court of law? Are we saying that impeaching a president is 
should be stricter than sending a person away to prison for life. Because if we go down that road, then maybe we need to change a lot of different things in our criminal justice system and so on. Because in, in every court proceeding, there's a standard of proof. In a civil case, you have to prove that more likely than not, this situation happened. In a child custody situation, it's clear and convincing evidence. In a criminal case, beyond a reasonable doubt. What's the standard in a Senate hearing? Do we want it to be more than beyond a reasonable doubt? Do we want it to be absolute proof? If we go down that road, there will never be enough proof because that's not how the real world works. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Parag Shah, attorney and pro hoc judge to the City of Atlanta Municipal Court. He's also author of The Code, a reference guide to Georgia rules of evidence. And stay tuned after the show. We're going to hear live NPR coverage of the next round of impeachment proceedings now in the House Judiciary Committee. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on impeachment. Are you keeping track? Are you over it already? Will the hearings in the House make any difference in the Senate? Well, you can join the conversation about this or anything you hear on our show on our Facebook group, GPB Radios on Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can follow us on Instagram at GPB News or email us on secondthought at gpb.org. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. And from the U.S. House to the Senate, where senior senator from Georgia, Johnny Isaacson, gave a farewell address yesterday. He served in that role since being elected in 2005 and was a representative in the House before that. Isaacson is stepping down at the end of the year due to Parkinson's disease and other health complications. He gave some parting words to his fellow lawmakers yesterday. GPB's Ricky Bevington has more. Georgia's senior Senator Johnny Isaacson delivered his farewell speech from the floor of the U.S. Senate. Isaacson wasted no time getting to the point of his speech. I want to talk about one subject today and one subject alone, and it's going to be short. But there's something missing in this place. What's missing, Isaacson said, is bipartisanship. Isaacson spoke for just over 20 minutes, paying tribute to colleagues, telling stories from his time serving in the U.S. House and the Senate, and he spoke his true mind. I want to talk about bipartisan, but what bipartisan really is, and I don't think most of you really know what bipartisan is. I shouldn't say that to an educated group of people like this, who've been down a lot of tough trails like I have as well. But bipartisan doesn't mean that a Democrat and a Republican talk to each other every once in a while. It doesn't mean, it means this, it means that two people come together, probably have differences, probably have a lot of differences, but they find a way to get to the end of the trail where there's a possibility of a solution. And then they do the things you have to do to get that position. America's today is built on people who found a way to get to that end of the solution. No question about it. As if to model bipartisanship, Isaacson spent much of his time praising a Democrat, fellow Georgian, Congressman John Lewis. Because in essence, really, John, to a much greater extent than me, but Ann and I together represent what things can change, how things can really change. If people want them to change, they're willing to do the things that let them change. But John Lewis is one of my real heroes in life because I watched what he went through to help us see the light in the South, in my part of the South, Georgia. And he was a hero, and he was a hero to me. Although he didn't call himself a hero, Isaacson mentioned the tough times he went through voting against his own party. He quoted American author Mark Twain. 
When confronted with a difficult decision, do what's right. You'll surprise a few and you'll amaze the rest. Isaacson said when he arrived in Congress, he, quote, tried to start amazing everybody. So I hope this Senate and this Congress and all of us in the years ahead, we've got some big problems. We'll start having a main goal personally. We're going to do everything we can to be a part of the solutions and the decisions that are going to have to be made. Bipartisanship is a state of being. It's a state of mind. As Isaacson wrapped up his remarks today, he had a warning. He said there are politicians who dance around hate. They won't use the buzzwords, Isaacson said, but they'll get close to it. We've got to stand up for the evils of society today because if we don't do it, nobody will. I decided I was going to tell you tonight what I really believe, and that is that America, we've got a problem. And our problem is we're not going to repeat ourselves. We're not going to exist much longer. We live in the greatest country on the face of this earth. Ain't nobody any, different, any better than the United States of America. Everybody's trying to break in. Nobody's trying to break out. We're always passing laws like they're all trying to break out. They're all trying to break in. Why? Because it's the safest, happiest, richest place in the world. But it is because we're the best people to protect that wealth and that happiness and have enough people to go in the military on a voluntary basis. Less than 1% of our population is served in the military. And make us the strongest defender of freedom and opportunity of anybody in the world. If we ever lose that, if we ever, if we ever lose the, the club, then we'll lose our coverage of ethics and standby support and all the other things we love and the things we do. Finally, ending on a high note, Senator Isaacson said one of his proudest moments in Congress happened last week. It was a photo taken after Congressman John Lewis praised him from the House floor. So John made this beautiful speech, and I said, you know, this is my time to pay John back. All these years he's helped me out, so many things I've done. I went to his 75th birthday because I'm, um, I'm 75. I want to go see what somebody that I look like. So uh, I looked in the mirror and found out it looked like me. But John and I are turning out to be really good friends. So I went to John. I said, John, I want to thank you for that speech. It's the best I've ever heard. And I just re opened my arms and hugged him. Not for a show, not for a display, not for any purpose except to hug him because I love him. I know what he's done to make this a great country, as well as so many other things and many other people. That's GPB's Ricky Bevington covering the farewell address of U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson of Georgia. Isaacson will retire from decades of public service at the end of the year. Coming up, streaming has shuttered most video rental shops, but one survives in Atlanta. Step inside with us when On Second Thought continues. I'm Virginia Prescott. We're back with On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Rembrandt's there with the theme from Friends. The show is celebrating its 25th anniversary and continues to have a cult-like following. Fifteen years after its final episode, Friends fans are up in arms after the announcement that Netflix will stop streaming the beloved series in 2020. 
But the gang will be hanging out on the forthcoming HBO Max service. It is the latest high-profile gambit in the high-stakes streaming wars that has really changed the way that we consume and what we expect of media. And this has happened in relatively little time. Consider that Netflix was a mail-in DVD exchange service back in 1998. Well, Kate Fortmuller is assistant professor of entertainment and media studies at the University of Georgia and joins us from Athens. Welcome. Thank you. Things really have changed in, what, 12, 10, 12 years. Nielsen estimates that as many as 16 million homes have cut cable in, over the past eight years and now use only on-demand streaming services. What, Kate, do you think has made Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime so successful? So there's a few things that have made them successful, but most of that has been a result of their turn to original content. So many of these services were licensing content from other other studios and other networks. Um, like Friends, and, like The Office? Yeah, exactly. Like Friends Friends and The Office are the two, definitely the two big ones. Basically, they, Netflix started producing content and started sort of thinking about it in 2012, but really began with their foray into original content with House of Cards. As for me, I'm just a lowly House Majority Whip. I keep things moving in a Congress choked by pettiness and lassitude. My job is to clear the pipes and keep the sludge moving. But I won't have to be a plumber much longer. I've done my time. I've backed the right man. Which became a very popular um, show and boosted their subscribers significantly. Prior to their streaming service, Netflix had about 4.2 million subscribers in 2005. In 2013, when they launched House of Cards, they were up to 29.2 million. Wow. So this was a very significant move for them and really has only been able to help them grow their business over the past Several years. Well, so cable companies, of course, are scrambling for revenue if people are cutting the cord. Warner Media is the company teaming up with HBO for this Mac service. Apple, NBC, Disney have all announced that they're going to launch their own streaming services. Why do they want to go it alone? Well, they're, they've actually, you know, I think when you think about Disney Plus, they're not really going it alone so much as in the recent years they've acquired Lucasfilm, they've acquired Marvel, and recently 20th Century Fox. So Disney has really been able to to grow their library content in a way that they have enough that they can create their own service based on their own content. So it doesn't really seem like they're just sort of putting out the Disney animated classics, right? So part of the kind of trend of consolidation and conglomeratization in the industries had, has led them to be able to kind of, quote, go it alone, even if Maybe it doesn't look like that in terms of what they're offering us. And the thing is that a lot of this content is already crossed over. You know, NBC made Friends, for example. And now Netflix is the sole distributor for Marvel series like Jessica Jones and Daredevil. My grandmother, she was the real Catholic. Fear of God ran deep, you'd have liked her. She used to say, be careful of the Murdoch boys. They got the devil in. But Disney owns Marvel and Hulu and has now come out with Disney Plus, its own streaming service. How is that going to change things? Well, yeah, it's okay. So Disney is majority a majority shareholder in Hulu, and Hulu also creates their own content. Many of the shows that were on Netflix, the Marvel shows, were canceled um, or will not be continuing on. And Disney is just creating their own Marvel shows for their new platform, many of which were sort of released recently in the in the second phase of the Marvel plan. So it really just, I think, changes things in that Netflix is going to have to rely more on their original content and less on the licensed content of other studios. So it's just going to be more competitive, right? So these these um, 
if for companies like N- like NBC with their new service Peacock, they're going to be tighter with their content and unwilling to license it to Netflix. So anything they have that exists, it's going to be a little bit harder to get an NBC show on Netflix or an NBC NBC show on Amazon Prime um, because they're going to be saving it for themselves. Really, the chance these these services like Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu that we've come to rely on for good content, what they are really going to have to continue to do is produce a lot of original content for themselves. So they're just they're in a race right now. Um, and, and how much an can expensive we race? It's a very expensive race. It yeah. is not. Not working out very well for Netflix right now. You know, people turn yeah. to streaming out of frustration with cable. You know, the whole there are 500 channels, but there's nothing to watch. Are we going to begin to see bundling options for these streaming services? Maybe that they will band together in some sort of cable like formation? Yes, those are already being floated. Yes, mm. we will. We will begin to see more bundling especially right as some of these things shake out and we start seeing some of the streaming services not be as successful maybe as others, those will start to be bundled with the more successful streaming services, much like cable, right, that you have, you know, cable networks that are kind of bundled in with the more successful ones. So so we're basically all with cable services paying for, for ESPN and, you know, even if we don't necessarily want it, but many people, that's why they subscribe to cable. So. Right. So we're paying for Showtime, HGTV, all of these kind of services together. But but a lot of people cut cut the cord to save money. Are we all going to be paying monthly bills for half a dozen streaming services in the future? Well, I think that that depends on you, I think. If you're really trying to save money in this new streaming landscape, you really need to sort of take stock of what it is that you watch and what it is that you value going forward and whether or not you need all of those services is sort of an individual question. If you are someone who needs all of them, you will be spending more than you were probably spending on cable. It's no secret that the rise of streaming TV and of prestige television happened at the same time. Shows on streaming services win Emmys, they're nominated for Oscars, and they're all available on your computer or your smartphone. So now that other networks are pulling shows from streaming services, what's going to happen to the quality of content? Ultimately, you know, what, I, what people often say, this is an exciting time for people who are making television because there are a lot of people who want to make television. So there's many more opportunities to pitch to places that are looking for fresh new content. So in that sense, it's great. Whether or not that finds an audience is a different issue, right? Mm-hmm. Well, broadcast networks can now use popular lead-ins to launch new shows. With streaming, it's all about marketing and buzz and, as you said, what happens on social media. Does that mean shows have to be phenomenal and have a really well, really well-funded, well-thought-out media campaign in order to survive and get those, eyes, get those eyeballs today? So interestingly, one of the critiques of Netflix has been that they are not very good at marketing because... They, things just sort of pop on Netflix, right? Mm-hmm. I think we've all had that experience where something like how do they make and, all these shows? Well, yeah, and you're you're sort of you maybe had heard an inkling like the politician. I'm going to be president of the United States. It does seem to be the hot job everyone aspires to nowadays. The air of impossibility has been removed. Yes, well, I had that dream when I was seven years old, Dean Lawrence, and I spent my entire life studying the lives of former presidents in order to identify common experiences and traits that led to their inevitable election victories. And I sort of I knew Ryan Murphy's show was coming out, and I think I read about it in the fall preview. But 
all of a sudden it just pops on Netflix. And there was no real lead up for me in terms of understanding when that was going to happen. So in that sense, Netflix has, has been under fire. And they launched over the summer the Netflix magazine as an attempt to kind of showcase different things that they were coming out with. Whether or not that's successful is going to be a sort of a different issue. But it was a way to signal to creators that we're trying. I mean, I think some of how they are, how, how they're drawing consumers to their shows is not, I think this is where this isn't great for new creators and sort of the need for more content is in order for something to get an eye, get eyeballs, it has to be a bit more, a bit flashier in terms of who it's, who's making it and who's in it. Right. So I can, I can talk, I can talk about the politician as a show that had that. I'm aware of Ryan Murphy because Ryan Murphy has had a number of successful shows and Netflix poached him away from FX mm-hmm. in order to make flashier content. And the same, the same thing happened with Shonda Rhimes um, who has an amazing track record. I mean, Grey's Anatomy, Grey's Anatomy will probably surpass Law and Order, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Scandal, um, How to Get Away with Murder, these shows that are very popular. um, Actors often get awards nods for them. um, So they poached her away. I don't, but again, I don't know when that show is coming, but I do know that they have Shonda. I mean, Netflix doesn't, at this point, they don't release their, they only release their numbers when it is advantageous. So Mm -hmm. we got numbers for Bird Box. We will get numbers for things that they think have done especially well, but we don't have numbers. So we don't ever really know how popular these shows are. And at this point, it still doesn't matter. There is some speculation that they will have to release that in the future because shareholders want to know. But they've been able to keep a very tight hold on their data for a very long time. Kate Fortmuller, I want to thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Kate Fortmuller is Assistant Professor of Entertainment and Media Studies at UGA. The recent launch of Disney Plus ratchets up the competitive streaming wars. HBO Max is due out next spring, offering even more options for viewers in a field dominated by Netflix, Apple, and Amazon Prime. Videodrome is Atlanta's last DVD rental store left standing in the age of streaming, catering to casual movie watchers and dedicated cinephiles alike. OSD intern Jessica Lowell visited Videodrome to learn more about the digital age holdout. I'm Matt Booth. I'm the owner of Videodrome. We started Videodrome in 1998. I worked at a video store in Little Five Points. There's a corporate video store called Video Update. So we were in kind of a culturally different area. And uh, people wanted kind of a different thing than, than like the average corporate fair. So, you know, I always had the idea that like sort of a more alternative video store could work in the same area. And I just saved my money and I had a coworker there and we came over and opened this store. Um, in the summer of 98. More than 33,000 films are available at the store in Atlanta's Little Five Points neighborhood, a selection which can be overwhelming for first-time video store clients. John Robinson has been working at Videodrome for 18 years and explains the process for people not old enough to remember the blockbuster experience. People come in and have never been in a video rental store before, and... um, I just explain, I would tell you, like, well, everything's for rent, Um, everything's $5, let me show you around and show you sort of how it's organized. This room is um, cult movies, horror films, international horror films, and science fiction, and this other room is um, movies 
organized by director. And then the rest is just nuts and bolts. Of, um, don't bring the box up, just bring the little tag up. So usually once young people or people who haven't been a video store in years, most people, they're always pleasantly surprised. Um, and then pretty quickly figure out how it works. And when they realize they can have a movie for a week for $5, then it's just a matter of searching themselves or asking. But I think the appeal usually begins with somebody looking for a movie, a particular movie, looking on iTunes, looking on Netflix, looking on Amazon, Hulu, and being often stunned that it's not available. Um, so the DVDs launched in maybe 1997, 1998. So we now have over 20 years of steady releases and they represent a big part of world cinema that simply isn't available streaming. Every one of those businesses has in recent years concentrated more and more on original programming and directing you, the viewer, um, towards watching their original programming. And what that means is they're spending less of their budget on licensing older films. My name is Matt Owensby. I work here at Videodrome and I have been working here for about 15 years now. We never want anyone to feel self-conscious about anything that they're renting here because if you are, you know, uh, renting a, a silent epic and, you know, one of these like uh, capital F films, well, that's great. And if you're renting, um, you know, an Adam Sandler comedy, well, that's great too because like that five bucks helps keep us open and, you know, we hope you had a good time picking out your movie here. We definitely don't like to think of ourselves as, you know, gatekeepers or just a place for only serious cinephiles to exist. One of the things that I really like about uh, working at the store, it's fun to have families come in and it's fun to uh, watch kids pick out their Friday night movie. And I remember as a kid going to the video store, uh, that was the first time that I remember having total agency over a decision that I got to pick out something and I got to go home with it. So, you know, to watch kids make that same decision um, is really rewarding. Videodrome holds community events outside the store, teaming up with theaters, bars, and restaurants to screen movies, often showing cult classics at the Plaza Theater. There you'll find regulars like Justin Scharf. It's even more rare these days to see a video store like that, and especially a local one where they're really kind of trying to curate something that is a little different. You know, even then, the old video stores we used to have, which were just really kind of focusing on a lot of sort of mainstream stuff. One thing I really like about it is I don't think there's any sort of, like, a snobbishness or elitism or, like, this is only a place for fanatics who can, you know, go through the whole French New Wave and studied film because this, it's sort of organized by some of these directors you might know, like a Quentin Tarantino or Spike Lee or someone who's famous, that you can kind of start there, and you know the staff, I think, can really kind of walk you through a couple. I think it's kind of really exciting to have a little bit of that discovery element. 
Like vinyl records or shooting with real film, Videodrome offers a retro experience and a respite from the digital world, along with a goldmine for everything from Hollywood blockbusters to obscure art films. Our thanks to OSD intern Jessica Lowell for her visit to Videodrome. You can join the conversation with questions or comments. Call us at 404-500-9457. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Laraven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Jessica Lowell and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.